More than 130 rural hospitals have closed since 2010, leaving communities with little or no access to health care. These closures can devastate both the economic and physical health of affected residents. So how do we quantify and understand this problem that so desperately needs fixing? With primary research, in-depth policy, analysis, and lots of data. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 13 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So today, Rachel, we're going to talk about uh, rural hospital closures. Uh, not really uh, a topic that many people like to discuss, but one that we must discuss. So, you know, how big is this problem is a question that is often asked of me when I'm out speaking about this particular issue. So what direction are we trending in is often another question. And then what is the root cause of all this? So hopefully today we'll be able to address each of those questions. Yes. So today we are talking to someone who spent a lot of time discovering, compiling, and digging into the data surrounding rural health care with a deep understanding of rural hospital closures in particular. Our guest today is Mark Holmes, director of the North Carolina Rural Health Research Center at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Mark. Thanks, Rachel and JJ. I'm really happy to be here today. Mark, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and the North Carolina Rural Health Research Center? Sure. So I was born and raised in the Thumb of Michigan and sort of lived in rural health and didn't really know any other way and drove 30 minutes for the dentist and, you know, 45 minutes for, um, you know, major hospital procedures. The neurologist would come in once every three weeks on a Tuesday kind of thing. And so that's sort of all I knew. Um, you went off to Michigan State for my undergrad, moved to uh, Chapel Hill for my PhD, and sort of saw this whole other world of having, you know, academic medical center two miles away, particularly Chapel Hill, and uh, developed an interest in economics and health economics in particular, and really began to appreciate, it's one of these things where it's, it's a cognitive dissonance, I'm not sure exactly the right term, where you don't realize this whole other world around, you know, out you, uh, about you. Um, and so understanding that my experience was not typical for most of my cohort, most of the people with who I was working, really started saying, huh, I, you know, I'm bringing something interest or different into the discussion. And in my third year, I guess, yeah, third year of my PhD program, got invited to uh, do research on it. And I didn't even know there's this whole rural health research thing. Bug bit me quickly. And here I am, what, 23 years later, continuing sort of the, uh, uh, the, the uh, interest. Uh, a little bit more about the center. So um, uh, the Rural Health Research Center is one of about seven or eight um, rural health research centers that are funded across the country by HRSA, the Health Resources and Service Administration, which many of your listeners know for many other things, community health centers, Ryan White program, uh, and do a lot of health professions workforce. But uh, we are funded by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy to conduct policy-relevant rural health research. And uh, rural hospital closures are one of the more policy-relevant things. And so that's where we've been spending our time the last few years. That's great, Mark. Thanks. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, uh, let's start with the why. Um, we do this on every episode, so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. So, Mark, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? 
Well, I touched on it sort of the introduction, but, um, you know, knowing what I grew up with um, and how fragile that system was, but yet how um, unique rural healthcare is in so many respects. And you think about um, every year in May when you need the athletic physical for next year. The two practices in town would open up their doors from 6 to 8.30, and every high school student can come through and get that. You don't see that here in, uh, you know, the Triangle of North Carolina. Um, the way that, in, so that's sort of rural health care, but rural health more broadly, the ability of communities to be nimble and roll up their sleeves and jump right in and get things done. That's what makes, I think, rural health so interesting and is, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, rubbing our hands together and the sort of the plight of rural communities and how, you know, almost every story is negative. I'd like to talk more about the focus and that's my why is really how um, exciting and the opportunities that exist in rural health to really address problems quickly. And Mark, you've now been doing this work for uh, decades, uh, and you've watched and tracked as rural hospitals across America have closed. In fact, more than 130 of those rural health centers uh, since 2010, according to your team's research. But uh, that's not a problem that just began in 2010, right? I mean, so how do you define a rural hospital closure, and how far back has this been tracked? uh, And when do we start to see this become a real trend? When did that happen? So the real first wave of closures occurred in the late 80s um, as Medicare moved to prospective payment. And a lot of the payment um, methods were designed on large academic um, hospitals and or large, large hospitals, often academic centers, which have different uh, structures than rural hospitals. And so as the move was there, all of a sudden, these rural hospitals couldn't survive on the payments that were coming through PPS. And pretty quickly, that was evident. Um, and we were seeing, you know, I think hundreds, well, not about hundreds, but, you know, uh, really high numbers of closures in the beginning. At that point, Congress took notice. Uh, there started to be annual reports by the Office of Inspector General, the General Accounting Office. They said, all right, we got to do something about this. Then sort of the 90s were an era of alphabet soup as different provisions were rolled out, different hospital types were, okay, what about rural hospitals that are really dependent on Medicare? Let's create Medicare-dependent hospitals that will have this payment structure. What about hospitals that are the only ones in their community? Let's create sole community hospitals, and we'll give them a payment structure. And so these, you know, different almost niche uh, designed hospitals were put into place uh, to address particular needs. In 1997, uh, um, after a uh, really successful pilot program run out of Montana, the critical access hospital program was, was, was instituted. And those started really rolling out in 97, 98. And at first, they were really small hospitals. And that really kind of nipped, you know, it didn't eliminate closures, but it really nipped them in the bud. So for early part of the 2000s, you know, everything looked, you know, reasonable. Then in the late 2000s, we really started seeing a ramp up again. And that's when one Friday afternoon, we've been hearing from enough people, you know, oh, we have another world closure, another world closure. I think we need to start thinking about this again. We rolled up our sleeves and said, all right, what are we going to do to start tracking these? And we got on the phone and called some of our different partners and said, let's form a work group where we all collect these and, and put them together. So what quickly became evident was how do you define a rural hospital closure and um, what what really this stems more than anything else is what does rural mean? 
And as we all know in, in rural health, rural means different things to different people. Um, and we came up with a definition that effectively is what the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy uses. And a closure we've defined as um, permanent cessation of inpatient services. So some rural closures that are reported, you know, we've had one in North Carolina, for example, that was um, probably 90% of people would consider this hospital rural, but it was part of the metropolitan area, so it was not defined as rural. And they effectively said, we don't want to admit anyone anymore. We're going to keep our beds open. But our goal is like one admit a month, basically. And we said, well, that's not a closure based on that. So it kind of runs counter to what a lot of people um, consider. The other thing where we differ from people sometimes is how we consider a move. Our definition of closure is primary is community based. And so if, um, you know, in Centerville, the hospital closes, but moves 15 miles farther west and, and it's really a move. They bring the license with them to be on the outskirts of town of the big metro area. We'll, you know, I think 15 miles is about the framework where we consider that a closure. So it's really a, does the community lose a permanent um, inpatient facility? What about the effects that these closures have on the communities where they happen? We've talked about some of those on Rural Health Rising before, but you're the expert with the data to back it up. And what, what does that really mean for the communities that experience those closures? I think we want to think about the effects of closures in three different buckets. The first and is the most obvious one is health. Um, this is one of those paradoxes that is frustrating to everyone in that there's really no strong research that a hospital closure affects the health of the community, which is, you know, is sort of like, you know, there's never been a randomized control trial to show that parachutes work, I think, you know, it's kind of the analogy that I often think of. You know, the, the closest we've come is there have been studies that look at closures more generally, and the the conclusion is usually something along the lines, well, there doesn't seem to be much evidence. A lot of those studies um, will be like three quarters urban hospitals with one quarter rural hospitals. And that's probably not surprising if if you have a hospital closed and there's another one five miles down the road, you know, further down the freeway, it's probably not terribly surprising to see the impact of that. I think what we're doing now in the state of research is to try and address this more directly. Um, there's been some early work that used uh, some data out of California and showed that, um, again, kind of consistent with this, when you look at urban closures, not a lot of change. When you look at rural closures, in-hospital mortality increased pretty considerably in the communities that, that saw one. And so the idea here would be that, um, you know, the story is I live in Centerville, my hospital closes, I put off and put off and put off something, I finally get admitted. And at that point, it's, you know, beyond saving effectively. Um, so think of like sepsis or something like that is a good example, or a heart attack where it takes me 30 more minutes to get to the hospital kind of thing. Um, that's one state um, that has not been published yet. It's a, um, you know, it's, it's early work. Um, but I think that's where we need to go. We're working on a study. We're collaborating with the Centers for Disease Control to do effectively the same thing. Let's look at places that uh, no longer are within 15 minutes of a hospital and what happens to those uh, communities in that kind of framework. Um, so that's health. 
Um, second bucket, I think, is economic. And, uh, you know, we've done studies. We're kicking a study off uh, later today um, to update that that looks at the effects of hospital closures on the economy of a community. Uh, when we did this back uh, 13 years ago, uh, we found that when a county loses its only hospital, the per capita income for the county falls and it's a permanent effect. Uh, I want to pause for a moment on that because that's not just, you know, 150, I should say just, that's not 150 people losing their job and moving on, moving out of the county, et cetera, thing. This is countywide the income falls. And why, how does that make sense? Well, sure, you're losing what's, you know, the largest or second largest employer in the community in, in most cases, right there up there with the school typically. Um, but all the other uh, businesses in town that serve that, the groundskeeping agency, you know, who's, who's uh, you know, is there a food uh, distribution company that provides the cafeteria? Is there a florist that works with that? Is there a hotel? All the kind of elements there that sort of depend on the hospital being there and the, the, the customer base. But even more fundamentally, you know, things like manufacturing. Um, if I am looking to build a new manufacturing plant and I'm looking at lots of places that have great industrial parks, one of the first questions I'm probably going to ask the economic development agency is, you know, tell me about your hospital in town. One, I'm probably going, you know, I may be living there. I care about my employees uh, that care there and that's going to be important for them. But second, um, you know, there are direct business effects uh, your workers' comp, one of the questions they'll ask is how far to the closest emergency department, because that affects that. So the loss of a hospital can mean economic effects across the um, the industry, you know, the, industri- the, um, the, the commerce of the community. Um, finally, the third piece, um, uh, which I think we know the least about, is this is I call this the social capital element, but this is the hospital as a community leader. And if you look at a lot of initiatives in communities, you know um, the hospitals are often right there. Everything from sponsoring the you know the kids softball team or soccer team, I guess now, um, but everything you know. But like, okay, we need to address opioid overdose in our community. What are we going to do about it? Where are those meetings often held? They're often held at the board meeting of the hospital. It's probably some hospital staff employee who dedicates 5-10% FTE to staff it. Where does, you know, when you come in at 6 o'clock at night, um, who provides the food? The hospital is usually, not always, but often the one right there providing the infrastructure for it. And nine times out of 10, it, their, their role is hidden. And you don't appreciate that until the hospital's gone and all of a sudden, We've had this crisis. What are we going to do about it? And all of a sudden, things aren't moving as quickly as they used to. It's because you've lost that that community leader in, in the form of the hospital. So we know rural hospitals are closing, as you have demonstrated and shared with us, and have been closing for some time for the variety of reasons that you did provide. Um, but do we really know why? to the heart of that issue of why. I imagine that um, there is some in-depth studies and policy research has come in in this area, but could you help enlighten our listeners to maybe know, and, and I think you touched on them earlier, but but the why. Yeah, I, I like to think of them as the five horsemen of closures, with apologies to Notre Dame or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, and they all start with P, so let's see how I can do with remembering them. 
Um, one would be population. So as, and you know, we see this at different rates across the country and it's actually somewhat slowed, but, you know, 10 years ago in particular was sort of the height of the rural out migration and populations decreasing. We still see that a lot today with our younger people. Um, and what that means is you have fewer population, um, generally older, which is typically Good business in air quotes for you know, healthcare, um, but they're going to be a higher percent on um, Medicare and other public insurance. Um, of those who are who, um, who are uh, working age, the payment structure—I guess this might be under the P for payment, but I'm going to keep it with population. Um, you know, what do businesses look like in rural communities versus urban? More small businesses, which means uh, less generous insurance, higher uninsurance rates. And so the structure of who lives in the community influences what the um, long-term sustainability looks like for hospitals and, and healthcare more generally. So that's P for population. Uh, second P, uh, payment. So I alluded to this a little bit, but everything from the um, payer mix, the proportion of the business that's commercial versus Medicare versus Medicaid versus uninsured slash self-pay, uh, the degree to which insurance plans have high deductible. Um, you know, I haven't heard an update on this lately, but some hospitals, uh, rural hospitals have, have said that they have more bad debt from their insured patients than from their uninsured because if you have a $10,000 inpatient deductible, you know, you got to come up with that 10 grand. And it's usually the hospital that that's stuck with that, you know, with, with not being paid for that. Um, other initiatives in terms of payment, uh, you know, the last 10, 15 years have seen a movement towards away from uh, fee for service, which is the traditional way of payment and more to more, um, more innovative payment structures. And I, that's a, there's a lot of uh, three-letter acronyms or TLAs that can fit in that uh, bucket, but uh, ACOs, alternative payment models, things like this that really depend on volume to uh, survive and so often be eligible. And so a typical story for this might be large academic medical center, or I should stop saying academic, large health system signs a contract with a commercial plan and says, this is how we're going to get paid now. It's new, it's different, and you're going to judge us based on our outcomes. Well, I, as the CEO in the large health system, look at the rural hospitals in my community and say, I have less control over what happens there. So I can control what happens in my walls. And so I'm going to encourage everyone I'm, air quote, responsible for on a payment model to spend more of their time in my system where I can tell the physicians what to do, I can give them the EHR, I have protocols, et cetera. So what that does is it creates incentives um, for a, the business that used to be visiting that rural hospital is now going into the large uh, system. So you're, you're, you're losing some business uh, in the rural community. Um, policy. So this fits federal and state policy, everything from uh, the decisions on whether to expand Medicaid um, at the state level um, to sequestration, uh, critical access hospitals uh, were receiving 101% of cost that was cut down to 99% of cost. I should always say 99% of allowable cost. Um, and that's 
that's been moved back to 101 during uh, during the COVID pandemic, but that will almost certainly move back to 99. So the decisions in Washington, in your case in Lansing, in my case in Raleigh, all of those have influence in terms of what um, you know what the uh, affects the hospital. Uh, fourth P. Um, Profitability. At the end of the day, it all comes down to being able to meet your meet your bills, and the the previous ones really speak to that. But that's everything from expenses, um, and um, really a lot of times a typical closure story is we've been losing one to two percent for years, and you know we've been able to you know draw down our reserves, but then one day we look and we can't make payroll, and so at the end of the day, you know it's liquidity that that leads to the closure. But what leads to poor liquidity is often profitability. And years of being in the red, it just becomes unsustainable at some point. Five is practice. So how healthcare is delivered. And we talked a little bit about that, but that's everything from what 10 years ago would have been an inpatient surgery is now outpatient. Where do I get my care? Um, oh, um, how do we, you know, the redesigning of how healthcare is delivered and telehealth you know, I've, I've always said the promise of telehealth would be interesting to see if telehealth can um, escape uh, after the pandemic and really become that lifeline that many of us have thought for rural populations uh, would be important and how what that means for hospitals in, in many ways that might actually be a negative for rural hospitals, uh, depending on how it's structured. So there's a lot to see what practice means uh, from that standpoint. On episode seven of Rural Health Rising, we spoke with Dr. Tony Slonum of Renown Health in Reno, Nevada, and he had just published a study, a literature review of challenges in rural health that were accentuated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And he focused specifically on critical access hospitals. But the background that was listed kind of at the beginning of his study talked about the history of critical access hospitals and the different designations of rural hospitals, like you mentioned before. Um, And he discussed the start of the critical access hospital program in the 90s due to that increasing number of hospital closures. So, Mark, that makes me think about over time, over these last, you said all these closures really kind of started to get our attention and, and get big enough in the 80s. So throughout that time, have there been periods where new policies or programs seem to have slowed the closures a little bit, even if they didn't fix the problem? Or are we just seeing a constant and consistent increase in that rate of closures? It sounds like critical access might be one of the unique areas there. Yeah, I think um, it's definitely um, a wave kind of phenomenon where we have, um, um, as we mentioned, the late 80s, early 90s kind of slowed for a while. Uh, we had, I don't know whether it's way 2A and 2B or 2 and 3, I don't know, but uh, just in the last six years. About three years ago, we started to see it come back down, and I think we'd started to breathe a little easier. Okay, maybe that you know, 2010, 2011 was really uh, the recession and uh, ACA and, the, and sort of everything that was going on with that, maybe the payment move. But um, and it was pre-COVID, uh, but we did see a pickup the last two years, and so okay, now it's something else that's going on. I think my belief, my personal opinion, is that this would have been, or I guess 2020 would have been the highest year on record. I think we ended up one, you know, two closures off, uh, but I think that's a hundred percent attributable to the CARES money, and what we saw in January, February, March prior to really COVID kicking in, um, 
even if you took if you took the pandemic away, I think we would have seen the highest. And certainly, if you took the CARES money away, it would have been um, devastating. Uh, when we look at what happened to business and revenue in um, March and April, and even subsiding, I mean, some places are finally seeing recovery. Some still aren't there yet to what they were looking at pre-COVID. Um, and when you're talking about you know fifty percent of rural hospitals being right there at break even, take away twenty percent of uh, you know, inpatient 50% of ED for a couple months, no one could survive that. So on that note, what can you tell us about the possibility of promising policy ideas you're seeing or digging into from your research? Uh, from what you have learned, is there a clear path forward to sustaining rural hospitals? And this is the million-dollar question, right? I mean, this is the question that we're all asking in our circles of rural hospitals is, in fact, uh, what is that path forward for rural health? And you've described for us the uh, devastation in the five Ps that could happen if we don't. So how do we do it? Yeah, that is the million dollar question, or more accurately, probably the uh, hundred billion dollar question, you know, which you <laughs> sort of added all. Yeah. Um, but I think let's, I'm going to answer that in two different ways. And one is how do you sustain rural hospitals? Um, and the chart model that, see, so uh, let me back up by saying the last few years, we've seen a, um, um, a large focus at the federal level on addressing some rural needs, which I think has been great and welcome. And there's some promising. Uh, ideas there. Uh, one of them is this chart model, which uh, and for your listeners who may not be familiar, this is uh, Medicare offering new payment models, uh, largely informed by the experience in uh, Maryland to some extent and to a large extent Pennsylvania, and where they've gone to a more, um, to a very different model of financing healthcare, which is Rather than everything you do, we're going to pay you for. It's more of a what, what's called a global budget. Here's hundred million dollars. Uh, good luck, uh, and uh, let you know. Come back to us a year from now, and then we'll figure out how much you need for next year. What that does is, um, from a positive deal, is it allows you to be far more creative. And um, for example, I mentioned earlier the hospital that said, we're going to keep our inpatient wing open, but we don't want to admit anyone anymore. The reason they had to do that is to get paid for your emergency department in a way that makes sense. You have to have inpatient services. Once you close that inpatient wing, how you get reimbursed for the emergency department it differs completely and it's not sustainable and not even close. So we have these rules, um, you know, Going back to the way that healthcare is paid for, if you think about the triangle, um, there's a payer, someone who pays the bill, there's a patient, someone who gets the service, and then there's a provider, someone who provides the service, three more Ps. And basically, the system is designed that no one trusts the other. You know, the, the payer doesn't trust the provider to be doing the right thing. And so they say, here are the rules you need to do. And the patient doesn't trust the payer, and the payer doesn't, you know, no one trusts anyone. And so how do you work in an environment like that? You need to come up with all these rules. And so, for example, that is the emergency department you know, payment system says we need you to be a hospital so that we can pay you in the proper way. What under a global budget or something like that that blows up our current system, we say, all right, you know, look, you're the one who's responsible for meeting your budget. You figure out how you do it best. And, the, you know, the community may say, look, we don't need all these services we have here. Let's close the inpatient. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to put an ED clinic that maybe is open 20 hours a day, 
15 miles out of town because there's this community that hasn't been served and it, the needs of that particular population, maybe transportation is a, a considerable barrier. That is not feasible or viable under current mechanism, but under something like this, you can. So it gets back to what I kicked off with, and that is, you know, tr- is basically empowering the community to design the healthcare they need, which I think is at its core where we need to be moving all over. The other answer is to sort of reimagine the hospital as we think about it. And that may mean losing inpatient services, but there are, um, you know, under um, the most recent uh, COVID um, uh, relief uh, bill that passed at the end of December, there is a f- uh, initiative to create these rural emergency hospitals. And these have been called under different names, but basically the short version is take a hospital, chop off the inpatient services, imagine an emergency unit that we will pay in a way that makes them sustainable. And I think when you think about, uh, back to an earlier question, JJ, you know, what do you see when a hospital closes? You, what, pe- what the community sees fastest is the loss of the e- emergency room. That's what people notice when their kid falls down the stairs or, you know, uh, their spouse is having a heart attack. That's where you really uh, see that hospital loss fastest. And so what if we can design a new type of provider that offers those services? Now, you know, no community is going to say, yes, we want that. But that might be a viable um, transition point if a, if a hospital under the traditional model is not sustainable to offer something there. And there are communities where that may be a good model. And think of, you know, particularly a place that's isolated where the goal can be get you in, treat that heart attack, treat that stroke, clear the choking, stabilize you, and then, you know, send you on an ambulance 20 miles down the road kind of thing. That might be possible. I think the other real promising avenue is to create, um, they're called different things, but almost like a health plex. And this embraces the idea of health and human services are often very far apart. And we need to get them together so that when you go and visit your primary care provider and they, you know, your hair is falling out, you're losing weight and say, are you getting enough to eat? And the patient says, no, you know, I skip, you know, um, five dinners a week because that's what I need to do. Look, 70 feet down this hall, you can go and sign up for, you know, whatever services or we have a food pantry or whatever like that. And now the ability to meet patient needs where they are is so much more, uh, you know, we're so much more able to do that. And so that means new buildings. That means redesigning the way we operate. That means aligning incentives. Again, we have to be creative in how we think about it. Um, But that, um, I think, uh, where I don't that might be reimagining healthcare, I guess rather you know, but but that I think is another real promising um, uh, deal. And what that the other thing that does that makes it more convenient for the patient. That's one bus ride to get all your services in one day. That's one uh, car. You know, we're still built largely on a system that assumes you can drive anywhere you need. This is America, um, and we need to recognize that not everyone has a car. People have to share cars. You might be too old to drive. Lots of reasons where that might not work as well. And so that means bringing in our transit systems and all the other, um, you know, social determinants of health, social drivers of health, social needs, whatever you want to call it. But that's two uh, sides of the coin that need to be recognized. Mark, we could spend probably seven episodes talking to you about uh, all of these uh, wonderful 
uh, studies and, and research that you've put together and the experience that you've had working with rural hospitals. But unfortunately, uh, we have uh, not the time uh, to do that right now. But I'm going to submit to you that we are going to invite you back on this podcast uh, because your energy and enthusiasm, I will say, is second to none than those that we have interviewed on this program before. So I want our listeners to know you can't see Mark. Uh, but I want you to know that uh, he comes alive uh, in his uh, descriptions and expressions. Uh, you can really feel the sense of urgency that he has for this and the passion that he has. And so, Mark, I want to thank you for joining us today. Your uh, work that you're doing is incredible. It helps us identify what we in small rural hospitals can do uh, as a system, as small as we are, uh, in the need to be interdependent and a need uh, to still maintain our independence to say, you know what, there's some research out there, and these are the things that we need to be doing. And you've given me some great ideas today, uh, which I'm going to take back to our community. And I look forward to our long-term partnership as we study this together. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun and uh, hope to uh, talk to you all again. And now for our favorite part of the show the voice of the patient. Today, we have a story from Rondi, whose father was a patient with us not too long ago. Here is their story. This is on behalf of my elderly father, Ronald. In early December, my dad went into the hospital because he couldn't breathe and didn't feel good. My whole life, I grew up with parents who didn't go to the doctor for anything unless it was an emergency, and I mean life or death. Well, on this December evening, My stubborn father called me and asked me what I thought. I suggested he go to the ER at Hillsdale Hospital. To my surprise, he did. I was content, but worried nonetheless. COVID had been rearing its ugly head once again and causing our numbers to climb. I was almost sure that he had it. Well, he was being tested for everything, including COVID-19, pneumonia, and the flu. All of his tests came back negative. The hospital went on and did some more extensive testing. They found out he had congestive heart failure, severe hypertension, and AFib. We were blown away. We never thought any of those things could be wrong with him. Hillsdale Hospital went above and beyond to figure out what was wrong with him and told him he needed to stay overnight for observation. That is when things took a crazy turn for the worst. My brother-in-law went to the hospital and texted me to tell me that the hospital wanted him to stay overnight for observation, and he said he wasn't going to stay. I had called the hospital, talked to the staff, and gave them my phone number and told them if he tried to leave or wouldn't listen to the doctor to call me. It wasn't long after we got off the phone that the hospital called me and told me immediately that they wanted him to stay overnight and he was not doing it. He had animals to take care of, he couldn't stay, and was going to leave untreated. Oh boy, he was not having this at all. At the time, the hospital was on visitor restrictions and only one person could be there with him. I couldn't do it because I have an eight-year-old son to take care of, so I couldn't even go there and sit with him or be there. I had to do everything I could via telephone. At this point, he was being more stubborn than ever. I told him to sit tight and stay because I didn't want him to die. I told him I would call the ER and talk to their staff. I called the ER and asked him to explain to me what was going on with him. He was not thinking clearly and definitely wasn't making sense as to why they wanted him to stay. The nurse I talked to was absolutely amazing in explaining everything. I told him, okay, he is staying, and asked them to let me talk to him. I talked him into staying and told him to relax and let the staff take care of him. I also gave the hospital my phone number and asked them to call me if they had any problems and to please pass my number on to the next shift as well. Once we got him into a room and got him settled for the night, he called me again and was much more understanding. 
I don't know what the hospital staff did, but while on the phone, a nurse walked in his room and he said to her, you know, you have to pay me every time you come into my room, right? And started laughing. He told me he had the nicest nurses taking care of him. That is when I felt like I finally started to breathe again. If you know my father, he is not a people person at all and would rather watch paint dry than deal with strangers, especially ones taking care of him. Hillsdale Hospital staff was nothing shy of amazing that evening. However, it didn't stop there. We were not out of the woods yet. The next morning, I got a call from the hospital. The man on the phone identified himself as Hillsdale Hospital and his name was Bradley. He told me everything in detail that was going on with my father. He even said he would be ready to go home in the afternoon once the rest of his tests came back and he saw the heart doctor. He even explained to me all of the new medicines he would be taking and exactly what was wrong with him. He was sent home with some really confusing directions on his medicine. Well, confusing to my dad anyway. Bradley simplified it for me the best way to explain to my father. It worked out so well. Needless to say, we got him all squared away and Bradley had called me back once again to make sure my dad was okay and understood what he was supposed to do next. My dad told me that while he was there, they took such good care of him. And I quote, those people took such good care of me. They even gave me extra food. They were so good to me, Rondi. I am glad you made me stay. That is not something to normally come out of my dad's mouth. I am so grateful for the staff at Hillsdale Hospital and everything they did to make my dad's short stay comfortable and easy. Thank you so much. Wow, what a great story to hear from the perspective of not the patient, but the family member. And sometimes as family members, I feel like we can be even more critical in a healthcare experience because we're so protective of our loved ones. So to get such high praise from the daughter of a patient really speaks to the great work of our team. Before we close, Mark, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So uh, we want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Uh, I think it's that um, I've done a number of site visits of rural hospitals um, in the middle of the night with my children. Um, and it seems like it wasn't until the last couple of years where uh, I've sort of been able to avoid that and everything from often injuries, uh, but uh, a wide variety of, I think have probably been part of 10 different rural EDs that I've seen uh, throughout my travels. And I'm certainly not my favorite, but it is, it is interesting, and um, I have to figure out a way to write that off taxes. I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> um, but to see different you know, rural communities and really embrace it, um, it's really – and it's such a different experience, um, almost always for the better, from what you see in urban. You know, the longest ED wait I'll see in a rural is, you know, 30 minutes often is just you slide right in, you talk with someone, it's casual and rather than often. I think that it really underscores that um, what makes rural healthcare unique and um, such an asset is that personal touch that you don't always get in other settings. Thank you again for joining us today, Mark. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll start a five-part series on the five Ps that Mark just provided us a great education on. Our guest for part one of that series will cover the first P, population. And we'll be chatting with a local community leader who works directly to support and grow our population every day. So be sure to tune in. And as a reminder, we are collecting patient testimonials to be featured during our Voice of the Patient segment. If you have an experience to share about the positive impact you or your loved one has had as a patient at a rural hospital or healthcare provider, call our direct voicemail line at 269 447 one, two, six, five, and share your story with us. You just might be featured on a future episode of Rural Health Rising. And if you would rather send us an email that we can read on your behalf, you can email marketing at hillsdalehospital.com.
And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Mark Holmes, director of the Rural Health Research Center at the Shep Center for Health Services Research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. For more interviews like this and more information, or to share your patient or family testimonial with us, visit ruralhealthrising.com.